The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to the This Is Working podcast, where my colleague Nina Melendez and I discuss a conversation I had on my video series, This Is Working. Nina and I take that conversation, we dissect it, and we extract our top takeaways for you, the listener. Today, we're talking about how a CEO revamped a legacy brand and how we did it by putting trust in his people and by being relaxed about the terrible. And I'm here with Nina. Hey, Nina. Hey, Dan. So first of all, happy birthday. I know we just passed your birthday. Did you have a good one? I had a lovely birthday, yes. Did you get any books for your birthday? You know, it's funny you asked me that because I did. I got a book from a friend of mine. Uh, the author is actually someone I used to work with. It was oh, nice. A nice yeah, and she didn't do that on purpose. She just gave it to me. I'm like, oh, I know this person. So it was great. Are you a big book buyer? I would guess you are. I love going into bookstores. Hmm. When I, I know something very specific I want to buy and I want to buy it immediately, I'll do it Amazon. But for the most part, I love bookstores. I love libraries. Whenever I go to a new town, I always try and find the like small little local bookstore and I, I could spend hours perusing. Same. Yeah. And I love when I took my son to go look at colleges, one of my favorite parts of the tour was uh-huh. to go to the library. Yeah. And you just start pulling books off the stacks. And I was like, oh, so much to learn. So this is amazing. I know, and you just don't have enough time. Well, then you are going to love today's guest. So excited. James Daunt, CEO yeah. of Barnes & Noble. So he's been the CEO since 2019. This is one of the great turnaround stories. I mean, people had basically written Barnes & Noble off for dead for good reason. This was not a place that people wanted to spend time. Amazon was eating their lunch. And James brought a very interesting perspective on how to turn around the company. We're going to talk about that today and what are the lessons uh, that you can take away from it. You know, but he was the perfect guy to pick for this. He opened his own bookstore in London called Daunt Books which now has nine locations. He runs a chain of bookstores in London in addition to Barnes & Noble. And he's been growing Barnes & Noble. So Barnes & Noble is huge even today. They have a retail presence in every state with approximately 600 bookstores. Between the stores and the website, they sell 190 million physical books per year. And one million of those books are unique books. So these Mm -hmm. are unique titles. It's the world's largest bookseller and a leading retailer of content, digital media, and educational products. Huge company, and yet it is a surprise they are still around. Yeah, so I mentioned Amazon. They came in and completely upended Barnes & Noble's business. And part of James's strategy as someone who intimately knows bookstores and started off by being a small bookstore owner is to sort of pull back on selling a lot of stuff and go back to just selling books. Let's take a listen. The great advantages is that bookstores are inherently nice places Mm -hmm. and uh, lots and lots of people enjoy being in good bookstores and obviously the independent bookstores had that nailed and they do great and everybody loves them. Um, And the only problem at Barnes & Noble is it had lost sight of that and it had tried to become a retailer. Um, And that's sort of antithetical to good bookselling. Good bookstores are different, they have personality, they reflect the communities in which they sit. And if you try and impose homogeneity on a on a bookstore structure, you end up with actually something that doesn't please anybody. And it was sort of kind of fine, and everybody appreciated these great, huge buildings sort of full of books, but increasingly full of lots and lots and lots of things that weren't books. 
And they just went a bit too far on that. And I think I've come back and just sort of stripped them back to the core principles of what is it to be a good bookseller and what is it to run a good bookstore. And now the rule is really try and think about how you uh, organize your books and present your books in as an attractive a manner as possible. Um, and here are some basic principles. Have your hardcovers at the front. People like new books. Keep tables full of books. Throw out the junky stuff that isn't a book. What James has done is the opposite of what you would think to do if you're competing against Amazon. This idea of going smaller to compete, I mean, who does that? It's mm -hmm. usually like, I got to get bigger. I got to keep up. I've got to undercut the competition in terms of price or oversell them in terms of inventory. And James was like, nope, we're a bookseller. We got to go back to our roots and that's what we're going to do. And I think people dream about that a lot is I'm going to take my company back to its roots. This is what we are great at, but you can't get smaller and compete. He has found a way to get narrower in scope, but not smaller in footprint. And it is a very intriguing, and I have to assume if you're working there, very attractive message to be heard is, guess what? We're a bookseller. We're going to crush it on books. And as he talks about, this is a place where you have people who love actually selling books and you can tell them, I'm going to empower you to do what you love. That's a great thing to do. It is a good way to motivate your people. Yeah. I love this idea of going back and seeing that you were trying to boil the ocean and scaling back and just focusing on that thing that you do really well. So my question is, when teams get bigger and goals become more ambitious, how do managers prevent themselves from losing sight of like what made them successful to begin with? What is a good way for managers to avoid that? You know, I think you have to know what the soul of your company is, hmm. what your mission is. And if you can hold on to what that mission or that soul is, or what makes people really love you, that is essential. And I don't know this, but I would assume that Barnes & Noble at some point had some survey done and they must have decided that what people really love is selection hmm. or predictability. And they probably went all in on that. And I think what James is saying is actually our soul and our purpose is to be able to get you the titles that you love and feel great about what you're buying. In some of the research I was reading about who's actually at Barnes & Noble, and it does incredibly well with teens and young adults. Mm. The YA area of every Barnes & Noble does well because it's a gathering place. You like being surrounded by books, you pick up books, but it's a warm, inviting place that makes you want to walk in, make some purchases, and hang out. And instead of trying to get you to buy more goods, which is what Barnes & Noble did, it is get you to love where you are and then you'll buy. So the goal of the company was not, it was not set up as a place where you can buy more stuff. Mm -hmm. It was set up a place that had the books that you wanted and therefore you buy stuff. And that's what James is doing, is taking it back to the why of why the customer comes in versus how you make the money. The other part that I love about James's strategy is it's about the people. This idea of as you get bigger, it is so easy to strip out the humanity. You want to standardize and templatize everything. You want to make it so that your business will work if it can be plopped down anywhere from Idaho to New York City. And James is saying the opposite. We're going to bring the humanity back mm -hmm. into it. We're going to tell you who works here and mm -hmm. what they love. I don't know if that's applicable to everywhere. If I go into my accountant, I'm not sure that I necessarily want you know, this person saying, well, here's how I love doing taxes. It's mm -hmm. like, I want you to do the taxes the right way. But I think for a lot of places, it does work. It is who is the person who's making these calls? Who are the decision makers? Why are you telling me to do this thing you're telling me to do? I think that's great to have this humanity be part of the process. Yeah. I love that he 
is not so much interested in making everything uniform and that he said that some of the bookstores change depending on where you are. They have some bookstores that have been redesigned to look more specific to the location they're in. Yeah. That makes the whole experience really special. I mean, I'm a, I'm a loyalist when it comes to purchasing, so I will go places where I feel like people are nice to me or they'll know my name, and I just imagine like how lovely it is to have a bookstore. We're like, Nina, this book came in in this genre you love. Like, oh, I saved it for you. Here's, you know, right. instantly, yes, I'll buy it. I'll buy five. I think a lot of people are that way too. They walk in and they go for the experience like those young adults. They come and they read and they sit. They have a coffee. Exactly. And if you could pull that off at a chain, yeah, that's really impressive. And that's something that Amazon can't do. Exactly. And so it's so cool that James saw that. This is a value prop that Amazon does not bring, and here's how we're going to go ham on it. I understand why most companies don't do what James is doing. He's making a very big bet on the people. And if you're in retail, the turnover is sky high. I mean, it's got to be north of 50% in a lot of industries. So you make a bet on the people, those people who you made a bet on are gone in a a month, a year, whatever it is. So what do you do? You put in templates, you standardize everything, you make sure that you can plug and play the people in and the system always stays constant. James is trying to do something different. He's trying to get his people to stick around. So let's hear how he's doing that. We want to promote performance and you, you have to put a structure that everyone can believe in and respect. I think you know, fairness is obviously necessary in all walks of life, but particularly in ours. Um, and I think the answer for us is to celebrate good um, and promote good. We had a very traditional retail structure, which was extremely flat. You had a, a manager, the exalted manager, and then you had a bunch of people who were, on, who were sales assistants, same as most retail businesses. Uh, paid maybe the minimum wage, maybe a little bit more, you know, not not particularly well paid. You have to put in a career structure if you want to advance people because you have to be able to say, you're great, we're going to pay you more, and we're going to give you a title that reflects that our respect for you. And then you begin to, as long as you're true to promoting people on the basis of their talent and their engagement and their enthusiasm, you will start to differentiate and build much more tenure in our business. We talk about them in great tenure in book selling. And it isn't really true. What we actually do is employ a ton of people who come in and work at the bookstore because they're going to college or they've just come out of college and they're waiting to get their job in LinkedIn and they're just passing time. And it's a really, really nice place to pass time. And then they're gone a year later, two years later. It's a very acceptable middle-class place in which to work. Uh, We're now about how do you ensnare and actually give proper career meaning to the best amongst those. And perhaps that's those who find the career and prospect of being a bookseller the most appealing. And that's something quite different. And as we do more of that, you begin to build these cohorts of, of really capable booksellers within the teams. And that's when the energy and the, the vibrancy of, of invention and personality-driven bookstores starts to evolve. And they become different and they become better. I think it was just an amazing playbook on how to make transitory jobs, ones that people feel invested in and see a career in. And like you said, there's a huge turnover. So being able to take something like selling books and make people feel like, hey, that they can expand their career here at Barnes & Noble selling books. Yeah. I was actually surprised by this answer. I did not think that putting in gradations of titles is a solution to anything. You always hear about managers trying to get rid of that. It's like you don't want to have assistant manager, assistant to the assistant manager. It just feels like 
overkill and you're just putting so many layers on the exact same cake. So what's the point of it? But James's idea that that builds careers, that being able to see that you can have a step, you can look back and see where you've come from and you can look up and see where you're going to. Mm-hmm. And that helps people stick around. I think that's a really cool idea. I, I think there's some downsides to it, again, because then you're sort of competing all the time and you think, how do I get to the next level, get to the next level? Do people do stuff just for promotion versus doing it because they love it? But if that's what it takes to get people to stick around, it seems like a pretty simple way to make people feel like they are on a path, especially if you're in an industry where you can't pay a ton. If the titles help make the job rewarding, Godspeed. I think the thing is, is people want to feel invested in. And I think the titles are a way that people can feel invested in. A manager is seeing your your work and how well you perform, and they can't reward you, say, with a huge promotion, but they can reward you with a nicer, fancier title, and it's a way to uplift and to help help an employee feel invested. Yeah, you've done the work. We see that you've done the work. Here's the title. So James really puts this into practice. So he promoted his executive assistant to being the head of PR and didn't just promote her, but saw that she had certain skills and believed in her that she could do X, Y, and Z. And little by little, she just ended up becoming someone who now runs all of his public relations. Yeah, I think it's a good example of just trying to find those paths for people. What I thought was interesting about that is that she had no skills in that area. He skilled her up, put her in the job, and skilled her up in the job. One of the things he's trying to do here in Barnes & Noble is you don't just move up in any area. You move up in the areas where you do have the interest. So if you are interested in one particular part of how the operation works, that's the area you start moving up in. You can move around. He's very much encourages people to move between positions and roles. But if you find an area that you like, you can keep moving up in that space. So, you know, he talks about performance structure and putting something in place that everyone can sort of rally around and believe in and respect. Do you think that's possible? I think so, yeah. I think that people are, I think that you can have systems in place where if everyone knows the titles and knows what goes into it, I think it brings out some intercompetitiveness. I think that it makes people realize what can happen if they stick around and where you could go next. But I mean, you look at probably the best example of this is the military or maybe government jobs where it's very clear you keep stepping up and here's the next level and here's the next level. I mean, it works in all walks of life. You know, you play video games and you level up to the next level. I just I feel like that leveling up is something that we are so used to in our lives. If you can put the levels into jobs, people like that. Now, I don't tend to love that as a manager. I think it can backfire where all people think about is their level. Or they think, I can't do something because I'm not at this level. Hmm. So I've had people say to me before, well, I need to get promoted because otherwise I go into these meetings and people don't respect me because I don't have this title. Hmm. And I think that's self-limiting. I don't actually think that happens in meetings, or at least I hope it doesn't happen in meetings. But if you're in a company where those titles are in a government or you know public employer or private employer where those levels are all that matters, I think you can get to that point where every meeting you are held back on what you can attend and what you can say based on where you are. And that is a killer for companies or Mm. industries. So if you work in retail now, or if you ever have, would this approach have helped you? Would it have made you stick around in your job? Let me know on LinkedIn using the hashtag, this is working. And when we come back, more on my conversation with James Daunt, the CEO of Barnes & Noble. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, 
isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. James was willing to give up a lot of control around the brand of Barnes & Noble. Each store is its own little hub. It's the complete opposite of micromanaging. And I wanted to know how he was able to do this, especially when you're in this top role and you need to control something. So this is what he said. I think you have to be very tolerant of failure. And certainly initially, as you loosen everything up, I always say, and it does seem to work this way, about a quarter of your stores become really a lot better. I mean, you go into them, they're great. About a quarter of them, become terrible. But you can't have one without the other. Right. And then the rest are in between. But I think it's it's relatively straightforward to be relaxed about the terrible. Not go in and cosh people and say, you know, bang, this is how you must do it. And certainly not do it from New York. But we've got stores all over the country and generally there's some good ones local enough that you can say to the guy in Austin who's absolutely fallen flat on his or her face and is running a terrible store. Talk to the guy up the road. Get the guy up the road to help you. And that means it's somebody talking the same accent as you, walking down the road. There's much less. And you don't get your pride stampled on. And you're much more likely to get them to turn around. Now, occasionally, if they persist, occasionally, then you know one has to get a bit more like, no, there are standards here, guys. This ends but relatively little if you let it happen naturally. I do think, I mean, one of the sort of the natural things of, of people running companies is they tend not to have done it themselves. And I think that makes them much less tolerant of, of the vagaries that can happen. But I've run a bookstore for a very long time. I know exactly what it's like to do, and I know how difficult it is. So I'm much more tolerant of, you know, just the sheer you know, like complexity of running a building. Um, if you've sat in an office and you've run everything, it kind of feels easy and you can you know, look at your spreadsheet and 400 are doing great and that's going club of the 200 that aren't. But but it isn't like that at all. And you can go from being very good to being very bad quite easily. You know, stuff happens in all our lives. You know, and we, we have to be very sort of human about that as well. The manager who's going through a tricky time, parents are old. Right. 
personal life's going wrong, how do you put support structures around them? Because that will make a very good store become a very bad store. So we better recognize it and put structures and, and make it easier and make it less pressured. I don't want people waking up at three in the morning thinking, oh, I want them sleeping, the sleep of the just. I loved what he said when he said, it's relatively straightforward to be relaxed about the terrible. Like be relaxed about the terrible. That to me, that sounds like some foreign language, you know? Yeah, I think it helps to be able to see the big picture. It is so easy for us to focus on what's failing hmm. versus what is going on in total. James's point about looking at this like a portfolio of saying, these stores are doing badly. I expect those stores to be bad. I mean, in his mind, he clearly has this bell curve and he says, I don't care what's happening on this tail, and I don't care what's happening on this tail. What, ha what matters to me is at the center. If you can embrace that and not just spend all your time on what's doing great and not just spend all your time on what's failing, I think you're in a lot better position. And if you have to pick one, you'd rather spend time on what's working great so that you can apply it towards the messy middle. But what you definitely don't want to do is spend all of your time on the failures. James's other point was that he has the failures learn from the successes. So it's not James airdropping in a bunch of senior managers from corporate and teaching the Austin store how to be a better store. He goes to the Austin store and he says, this store up the road is actually really great. Why don't you go spend time with her, this woman that's running this other store? Why don't you go spend time with that team and learn from them? So it's this kind of like coaching as the manager, as the leader, you don't have to have all the answers. But if you compare someone who does seem to have some of the answers with someone who needs those answers, that feels like a really great way to help level people up and to do it in a scalable way where you're not on the hook as a manager or leader to be the person with all the answers. You just have to bring people together. So on the flip side of that question, if you're taking over a company, let's say, where failure has been viewed poorly and it's a bit of a toxic environment, how do you come back from that? How do you rebuild that? Well... Investing in people and making sure that they know that it is okay to fail is really important. Setting that kind of psychological safety within your company is essential. This is exactly what James did. I mean, imagine what it must have been like working for Barnes & Noble as a chain where you have to keep moving numbers. One of the things that he did, that we don't talk about here, but that I, I thought was super interesting was he ripped out the foot counters at Barnes & Noble. These are the devices that would tell you how many people have entered the store. Because hmm. he was like, what's the point of this data? What are you optimizing for? You're just telling your managers to make sure that people are walking in all the time. If they don't have enough people walking in, that's a problem for them. So then what do they do? They start optimizing for people walking into the store. But he's like, all that matters is sales. You know in a bookstore whether you're doing well or not because you sold more books this month than you sold last month. That's success. So you just focus on that. And then you don't have all of these spaces for people to fail. I mean, there are a million metrics that you can be failing on. He just says, focus on one thing. We want to be selling more books. What's the best way to sell more books? Figure it out. Talk to other people. Set up your books in a, in a nice way. Put in staff recommendations. This stuff's not rocket science. Just make sure people like the experience and that they're then buying when they walk out. That's it. So wait a second. I see value in counting how many people walked into a store. Because if you have a store and you have, say, like, I don't know, 5,000 people walk in in a given day, but you're only selling 10 books, then you know that there's something wrong with the way you're designing your store and that you've got a ton of people coming in, but they're walking out like uninspired. Maybe. maybe you know that, but maybe you also just know that there are people who are walking in. If you had 100 people walking in and buying 100 books, is that better than having 
10,000 people walking in and buying 90 books, yeah, you'd rather have 100 people buying. You have to sell 100 books. In the end, mm. you got to sell 100 books. What you're describing is, you know, Taylorism is this idea of setting up a factory and you measure how many parts are going down the line and how many times those parts are being assembled and how many seconds. And then you're optimizing for each one of these components of getting the car together or getting the Barnes & Noble to be able to push out as many books as possible. But it sort of doesn't work that way. It's better to know the goal mm. that you're trying to achieve and then bring in the best people possible to achieve that goal and trust them. What I like is that he's trusting his people to find the success rather than trusting the system to produce the success. If you're measuring footsteps, you're trusting the system, you're trusting the technology and the data to make this happen versus trusting the people who you're really relying on. So, you know, one thing that I love about James is that he knows very intimately and intricately the business of selling books because of his background. So he can come to a Barnes & Noble and have that experience to help shape it. And it makes me wonder if someone like a Stephanie Lenartz, for example, who spent her entire career working in hotel management and in hotels, what does she bring or how can she turn around a company like Under Armour, where she is now the CEO, when she has no experience in retail or in sports? That's a great point. It's this idea of if you're a hammer, everything is a nail. Yep. We've seen things work in our careers. We understand how certain processes have made the places where we work better. And so you can't help, I wouldn't think, but to bring those in. So we've talked in the show before about this idea of having the beginner's mindset and of the benefit of being able to ask the dumb questions. But if you can ask the dumb questions and you can have the beginner's mindset and also be a subject matter expert in the area, That's that feels amazing. like the best of yeah. all worlds. Yeah. So someone like James, he knows how books work. I think you are you become much less reliant on templates and systems when you know how things actually work. For instance, we were talking about what are his favorite books. And this is in the This Is Quick episode. Instead of naming individual titles that have changed his life, he talked about the books that have sold tremendously, that have caused lines out the door of his store. And he just knows it. He knows the calendar. He knows the authors. He knows what it's going to take. And you start building this rhythm mm -hmm. of how a business works. And that rhythm comes with you, whether you're at a small nine-store chain or whether you're at 600 Zoom stores, in. Barnes & Noble. There, there is some benefit to knowing the rhythm of your industry and knowing who the people are and what the events are. And his ability to then take that and then also come in and say, we're going to reinvent this place. That feels to me like the best of both worlds. Yeah. There's certainly the benefit of coming in with a fresh perspective, right? Of like, yeah. hey, I can, you know, we've always done a thing a certain way, but why? Because you, you don't know. So you can come in and say, totally. hey, why are we doing it this way? Here's a different way of doing it. But I do think that when you get to a certain part at the top of the chain, your experience and your ability to know things on a granular level, like in, in, in the fabric of how it is run, helps tremendously and is better than being the CEO asking dumb questions. Yeah. All right, so tell me where you net out on this. Would you rather have a leader come in with a totally fresh mindset, new ideas, they've never experienced this before, they are a sponge, they're learning the industry and learning the role, or someone who is a subject matter expert, tons of experience, but maybe set in their ways? Which one do you think ends up being better? Let us know on LinkedIn using the hashtag, this is working. And please share this podcast episode with a friend and review it. It helps new listeners find us. If you want to hear more from James Dond, be sure to check out Dan's full video conversation with him on the LinkedIn News page. There's a link in the show notes. This is working as a production of LinkedIn News. Our team includes Sarah Storm, Max Miller, Stephen Valdivia, Asafki Drawn, Taisha Henry, Andres Cordona, and Lolia Briggs. 
Joe DiGiorgi mixes our show. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. And our head of original programming is Courtney Coop. I'm Nina Melendez, senior producer. And I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Be well and stay curious. <laughs>